0: Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest, Darkness on the Edge of Reason edition. It's Wednesday, October 5th, 2016. On today's show, Westworld is the new gigantically epic show from HBO. It's about a Western theme park and its cyborg inhabitants running amok. And then Bruce, the boss, he's written a memoir inevitably titled Born to Run. We discuss its possible relevance and its many revelations with Slate's own Carl Wilson. And finally, the unmasking of Elena Ferrante. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Uh, Julia, I'm sure before we dig in, we have uh, many bits of business. What do you have?
0: couple pieces of business. Number one, we are doing a live show in Santa Monica, California on Thursday, October 13th. We'll be joined by the wonderful Karina Longworth, host of You Must Remember This Uh, The world's best Hollywood history podcast, I feel confident in saying, and also uh, one of the best podcasts out there. So we're very excited about that. You can still get tickets for that at Slate.com slash live. Also in our Slate Plus segment today, we will discuss a fascinating profile in the Washington Post by Stephanie McCrumman titled, Finally, Someone Who Thinks Like Me. Uh, It's a profile of a mentally unstable woman who is a Donald Trump supporter, and we'll discuss the ethics of the piece and the execution of it. Uh, You can sign up to hear that segment and others like it at slate.com slash culture plus. I also wanted to let listeners know about an awesome new Slate Academy available to plus members. It's called pop race and the 60s. And it's from Jack Hamilton, our pop critic. A couple of weeks ago, we put the first episode in our Culture Fest feed free for all of you. That was on Bob Dylan and Sam Cooke. And the second episode about Aretha Franklin and Dusty Springfield is out this week and is incredible, only for Slate Plus members. You can hear the first episode and sign up at slate.com slash pop academy. And if you become a member, you'll also be able to hear those bonus segments from us every week. Oh, and I have one more thing to announce some personal news, as they say on Twitter. Uh, My husband has a new job. He's a creative executive at HBO now working on their comedies. Um, But he's part of a pretty small team that works on all their stuff. And as a result, I am no longer going to talk about HBO shows on this show. So I will be sitting out for the Westworld segment and the lovely Willa Paskin will be sitting in.
2: Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Westworld is based on an old Michael Crichton film in which high-paying guests get to simulate the old Wild West with cyborgs. Uh, It's very very Crichton-esque like Jurassic Park. It's a theme park gone awry. Uh, In this, the new HBO iteration, you have three layers of characters, the rich and decadent guests, the robots who are starting to dream of electric sheep, presumably, and the parks managers who are jellied corrupt technicians awash in ulterior motives and uh, interesting thoughts about evolution and artificial intelligence which we'll hear about now in the clip uh, let's listen to it
3: the evolution forged the entirety of sentient life on this planet using only one tool The mistake but of course we've managed to slip evolution's leash now haven't we we can cure any disease keep even the weakest of us alive and one fine day perhaps we shall even resurrect the dead do you know what that means? It means that we are done. That this is as good as we're gonna get.
2: Um, that, of course, is Sir Anthony Hopkins in his uh, kind of dreamy Hannibal Lecterish mode. Uh, we're joined by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hey, hey, uh, hey! Indeed, um, this show is—it's uh, big big budgeted, important, self-important, and widely reviewed, across which there have been a spectrum of opinions on it. Uh, where did yours fall?
4: I, um, so just to like sort of place Westworld in context of HBO's situation at this moment, HBO is like, has long been the preeminent prestige cable channel in the country, but um, has sort of It's not that it's fallen on hard times at all, but it's definitely sort of feeling pressure, particularly from Netflix and um, the other sort of streaming companies, so Hulu and Amazon, um, just that there's so much more competition for everything. And they have a huge hit in Game of Thrones that has an end date now. And they've had some sort of missteps, like they aired Vinyl, um, a kind of failed Terrence Winter-Martin Scorsese collaboration that was supposed to be their next big drama, and it wasn't. So they really need... uh, a hit, basically. And it
2: should be said that there's been regime change at HBO. Yes. There's a new team in place.
4: As a result of kind of some blundering around. So, this show, for lots of reasons, looks like it could be that hit. I mean, even before it actually aired, it's like it has robots, it has sex, it has violence, it has this Western element. It sort of has this sort of epic scale and scope. Um, that a show like Game of Thrones has. So there's a lot of expectations about it. I was impressed with it because I think it's sort of actually, in the first episode especially, sort of threads this needle where it's trying to give you sort of all the salacious, gory, violent sex stuff while being self-aware that that stuff is all gross and problematic. Mm -hmm. And it actually, it kind of did that in a more uh, effective way than I would have imagined it was, it's possible to do. I mean, Game of Thrones is constantly in these kind of contortions about um, here we're showing you all this violence and all this sex and you're supposed to think it's icky, but you're also supposed to love it. That's why you watch the show. Um, and this this seemed like oh, kind of like a some of the same moves, but like a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, actually icky. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just to set up the show, it's it's about, there's these, I mean, they're, they're called uh, hosts, but they're sort of robots or animatronic beings, humanoid beings who have, in the course of the first episode, um, kind of develop a memory, which is to say they remember their past game lives. And everyone who comes to Westworld, all the rich people who pay to go there, seemingly what they do there is shoot shoot robots and have rape robots and flay robots and have like these basically all of the hosts have these horrible traumatic histories so as soon as they become more human by sort of accessing their memories they're like just all trauma
2: survivors Mm -hmm. that's interesting so it has a it has a brutalist level and a meta level uh and and maybe many in between but the brutalist level is that like game of thrones it's uh, it's it's violent. It's gory. It's sexy, and it's receiving complaints that it's sexually violent. We'll get into that, I'm sure. But the meta level is really meta, right? Because you could you could argue that we're the guests, right? We have this very spectatorial and almost psychopathic desire to participate as watchers of gory but fancy TV, to participate in a hyper violent world in a kind of you know spectator. Way and but but the where where it's really driven home is the management layer, uh, which I found the most interesting by far. Uh, who um, are really kind of like showrunners, and they're finding ways, you know, to create narrative. I mean, you know, essentially they are creating narratives in addition to these spookily human-like robots. They're creating storylines which the guests can then enter into, and. Did, did you pick up that layer too that this is really self-referential in a way? I I am not the only person to have said this. <laughs> I um, even
4: mentioned it in my review. Yes. I uh, haven't
2: read your review. This is one of the few times Willa I did not get to read. Well, I'm your glad that I'm
4: passed I, I passed pass the test. But yes. Uh, <laughs> I think I passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, there is uh the whole thing is kind of I I think I use the word grim scrim on like television itself, which is just that it is about I mean, exactly. There's these showrunners who are creating this narrative where they're feeding the guests all the sex and the violence that they want. And and we, in a certain way, are, are the same as those guests, although obviously we're sort of removed from them at the same time so we can um, – be disgusted by their choices even as we um like to watch them. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one of the things that I that sort of is ironic about the show in a way that's sort of sad is like because we know they're robots, there's like an ickiness to all of the sex that yeah. um is not does not exist in a show like Game of Thrones mm-hmm. where they're actors, where they're humans. Like the idea that actual human actors are playing robots is the only way that we're sort of tweaked out about all the disgusting things that are exactly the same that happen in Game of Thrones. So, like, mm. when the human actors are just playing humans, we're like, oh, we're here for that. But we're like, oh, they're robots? That's so gross. Like, this is so mm-hmm. this is such a complicated situation. And, in fact, they're all still being played by actors. But we're only tweaked out by, like, that kind of nudity and rape if they're <laughs> animatronic beings.
3: As a non-watcher of Game of Thrones, I can only talk about the visceral impact of this show on me. And I have to say that whether it was because the actors are supposed to be robots or whether it had to do with this meta level that Steve's talking about and how intellectualized and I don't know what the word is but how sort of um, analytical you know the relationship is between the watchers and the watched I didn't feel emotionally Im- imbricated in this violence at all in fact in a way that scrim that you're talking about seems like it was it was built to keep to keep viewers from having to ask what their own relationship is <laughs> to the violence is. Yeah,
4: I mean, I think one of the things that the show in the first couple of episodes or two does sort of successfully is it does keep you at a distance as a viewer from some of the more distasteful elements of what the guests are choosing like it doesn't show you it refers to a huge amount of sexual violence right and
3: we see evan rachel wood who plays the kind of female lead of the show who's an android getting dragged off by her hair presumably to be sexually assaulted over and over and over again it's part of her story arc let's say in her in her literally she
4: is programmed to be raped every day by someone who like wants to rape a, a sort of seemingly innocent farm girl.
3: Right. And and so the storyline that you see starting to take shape in the first few episodes is that as she gains sentience, she's going to become some sort of angel of vengeance who starts right. to actually mm-hmm. be able to to yeah. rebel. but the show
4: does cut away from her brutal rape. Like we are mm-hmm. left to Yes. I mean there's a there it revisits it in a later episode, but um in the first episode it's like we know the violence is happening, but they don't actually make us watch it. And right. I think so, it sort of makes those moves at a couple of points where it's like we know this really distasteful thing is happening, and we're going to leave it to your imagination.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the show is is a very it's very obviously timely, right? So every other think piece, you know, very smart think piece I read on the internet is about AI, um, and uh, I mean the, the the twin issues of how much of our economy is going to be taken over by Borgs and bots and self driving trucks, uh, along with whether or not. Imbuing machines with intelligence is going to make them conscious volitional, autonomous, and eventually our masters. Um, You know, it it, it couldn't be a better time to revive the old Michael Crichton movie, which was kind of like was fun garbage with Yul Brynner as this really creepy uh, cyborg back in 1973. Now, on top of it, they've layered Philip K. Dick and a little bit of Proust. And, you know, I found it at its best moments genuinely chilling. Um, even though it was analytic and a little cold. But it's fine in a way because it's about people the people running the place who are analytic and cold. I do wonder if I'm going to overcome my lack of w- feelings of warmth or sympathy to stick with it for a very long time. But the setup is intriguing enough that I'm going to persist and watch probably all of the first season. However, its, it's coldness may eventually get to me. I, I have a very weird initial response to the show so i'm far more interested in anthony hopkins and i'm sorry who's the actor who plays the wonderful kind of lead designer jeffrey wright jeffrey wright who seems terrific i'm way more interested in this this really cold palace intrigue world that's creating the artificial world than i am in this kind of blade runner redux going on um, on the ground
4: so, I mean, just to sort of give some framing for, like, the actual characters in the show, there is Russell, played by Jeffrey Wright. Um, there's Teresa, who's played by uh, this wonderful actress whose name <laughs> I'm going to ruin. Sitsa Bobit
3: Knudsen. It, yes, I who knows stars right. in and is like,
4: my favorite person, but I think is sort of miscast here, to my uh, chagrin. Um, and and Anthony Hopkins is kind of the creator of the whole... He's, like, the original... He made the robots, and he's sort of like a an eminence grise who has something to do with it, but, like, the day-to-day workings of the park have been left to other people and uh jeffrey Wright russell um sort of is in charge of dealing with the programming of the robots and um teresa is sort of in charge of problems um and and so it's sort of like you th- at the beginning it seems like it's kind of like the heart and the money <laughs> sort of uh facing off against each other to like make sure the park is properly run but of course in the course of the first episode we see how some of the hosts are going to, like, develop weird memories and quirks that turn them, um, you know, not just into people, basically, like, things with souls. It it actually, there's a sort of um, religious element that gets introduced, which is that basically mm-hmm. they kind of begin to hear voices, and they begin to have these visions of their past lives, and there's this sort of, like, it's not just uh, as totally straightforward um, they have consciousness. It's like they have a really messed up consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I thought, was like, that to me was an interesting yes. twist. Like, not right. just the, to have them be just regular people, but to have yes, them... Yes,
2: exactly. Like, they're this hard drive palimpsest, and you don't know when you reboot it what weird combination of memories and impulses you're going to get. I mean, that's when I found it really genuinely chilling. I One thing, Dana, I'm curious, one of my responses to it was it didn't look weird enough its look wasn't as weird as the as the script or the premise. In, in a way, it looked to me kind of like network TV. I mean, I know maybe that's a, a <laughs> extremely crass response. I wanted it to feel and sound. I want the texture, the kind of cinematic texture of it to be weirder.
3: I guess I see what you mean. It's pretty conventional storytelling in terms of the the framing and things like that. I mean, I would say that the set design of the world that you prefer, prefer, Steve, the framing world of the the creators, you know, looking down in this almost Hunger Games-like way on the artificial world they've created and that they're controlling, that that's more cinematically interesting just in terms of the production design. I mean, it's the most inefficient workspace I've ever seen. There's about mm. every human who uh, and robot who lives in that establishment seems to be surrounded by about 20 feet of unused space at, at all times.
4: <laughs> they don't share desks.
3: <laughs> and the way they store the uh, the unused androids is just, it's sort of like the um, those Chinese warriors, you know, that were dug up from from some ancient grave, right? And there's just like thousands of them standing in a and row. And like maybe attention. also like
4: extruding bodily materials they're in that first episode it's like it smells really bad when they go into the storage facility and i was like is this because like they're kind of rotting or unwashed like i couldn't quite figure out
2: mm-hmm. yeah
4: and i thought that was a really gross that and creepy impressively thing.
3: eerie and, I, and actually i think it, it's it's a great challenge for the actors i loved the scenes of which evan rachel wood gets quite a few and james marsden gets some too where the androids are brought into the storage facility or the you know the creation facility they're sat completely naked on chairs and interrogation rolling chairs and Mm. and they're basically computers so Jeffrey Ryder whoever's talking to them can say go online go offline access your memory go into analytical mode and it's it's a great challenge to see the actors do it and I think they carry it off really well all right sweetheart can you hear me
2: yes I'm sorry I'm not feeling quite myself
3: who's the accent do you know where you are
2: I'm in a dream. That's right, Dolores. You're in a dream. A dream that could determine your life.
3: Yeah, Steve, when you mentioned that this is sort of, what did you say, Proust by way of Philip K. Dick or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think
2: I did say that. Yeah. Well,
3: I was scribbling some notes during my watching, and and the things that I wrote down were Hunger Games, right, which you see in the, the relationship between the, the creating world and the and the, and the created world. Blade Runner, for sure, and this whole question of sentience and the Turing test and who's going to pass it and what does it mean to have consciousness. And then also The Matrix. I, I feel like maybe maybe this show's long game, I hope this mm. is its long game, is to pull some kind of Lawrence Fishburne-type <laughs> moves from The Matrix, <laughs> where (laughs) Suddenly, you know, the entire basis of the reality that we thought we were in shifts because of of some change in the.
4: Well, it's interesting you should say that you want that because um, without giving any spoilers, I've seen the first four episodes and I I said this in my review. I think the show takes um, a kind of very stark mythology turn starting in episode three where it sort of starts to be like instead of instead of just as it does in the first episode and two episodes saying we have this extremely interesting premise. Let's see how it unfolds. Just as it is, it starts to put in sort of strange backstory where there's like in the game the character played by Ed Harris, who's referred to only as the Man in Black, and who's this who is um, a visitor and is very vicious one. He's the person who's uh, regularly raping Evan Rachel Wood's character, for example. Um, he's gone completely quote unquote black hat. Uh, he sort of suddenly becomes obsessed with this maze and like finding the game within the game, and you start to sort of see, I think, some very like lost like. Matrixy, like this is this isn't just as it seems. There's a whole um, mm-hmm. undercurrent yeah. of like plot and mystery. And that, to me, I can see that people are into that, and I and that people are into that, but that sets off huge alarm bells for me. Well, when like, you, i when think you say turning lost, it into a detective talking show. about
3: Lost and a maze, and I saw a little bit of this plot element of the maze starting to come into play, that is exactly where I would not want it to go, because as I think anyone who's listened to this show for a while knows, one of my least favorite kinds of TV shows <laughs> is the huge overarching mythical narrative that you have to mm, pay attention mm-hmm. for every second, and The Cigarette Man and The X-Files. <laughs> that kind of television really turns me off, so.
4: And also, it's sort of like, it just... In this instance, it seems like it undermines what's interesting about the show,
1: mm-hmm. which is
4: not really any of that stuff. and does it like it doesn't need that stuff. So why are you giving me something giving me a storyline that's almost like sure to disappoint me in some right. ways? right Like right. you know like, the,
3: ro- the robot's achieving sentience was already plenty
4: totally. We don't need to like start reddit threads about
2: what
3: t- <laughs> <laughs>
4: like, you know, hints were dropped in episode one.
2: We should quickly mention, in addition to Proust, Philip K. Dick, and on and on, one very obvious influence on the show. And if we don't mention it, we'll get tons of emails, which is video games. I mean, it's clearly as much about entering a gaming world, getting lost in its labyrinthine interior, on and on. Uh, Dana, um, uh, you're a decadent psychopath. Are you going to stay with this show for a while?
3: (laughs) I have too many first-person shooter games to play. (laughs) I don't know that I have the time to invest.
2: (laughs) Uh, Willa, you, well, it's your professional duty, but let's say you were a civilian. Um, would you, uh, would you be sticking with this one?
4: I am, I am curious to see, um, what happens almost more, uh, if it goes down this mythology route than anything else. Um, and if it really does, then I'll sort of be exhausted and tired of it. But I, I think it might, I think it might sort of find a way to do both, but I, I yeah. was surprised by how, um, well executed. I thought the first episode was like, I didn't have particularly high expectations. I thought they did a good job.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to stick with it. All right. The show is Westworld. It's on HBO. I think they're going to be mixed feelings. We'd like to hear yours at Facebook.com slash Culture Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always a total delight.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: What is left to say about Bruce Springsteen? And I suppose that's the point. After fifty years of making music and thirty years as stadium filling rock and roll superstar, every man, is there any way to put color, flesh, or actual meaning onto the Mount Rushmore visage known as Bruce? 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 Bruce. He himself has written a memoir, a surprisingly candid look at his working class upbringing, his father's, and his own struggle with depression and mental illness. The book touches on race, uh, sex, misogyny. We're joined by Carl Wilson, Slate contributor. Carl, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
2: Uh, you read the book. You reviewed it for Slate. Uh, loved your review. In some ways, for a figure who seems so ubiquitous and picked over, actually, there are a fair amount of revelations in the book. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's surprising. You know, you do feel from you know decades of Bruce Springsteen songs and articles and interviews and. Feature documentaries, you know, every time they reissue one of his sort of classic 70s albums lately, there's a two hour movie that accompanies it. So you really wouldn't think that there's much to say. But I think that the trick with the book, most of all, is that Springsteen really is a writer, you know, and even though there's definitely ways that feeling his way around the prose form and sort of long term storytelling rather than sort of four or five minute bursts of storytelling doesn't come completely naturally to him. He is able in a way that most celebrity memoirs can't to um, really bring us inside his perspective and particularly the family story um, that's that's in many ways at the heart of the book. And then the career story is also surprisingly compelling along the way. And it's kind of the the meld of the two, the way that you see that there's this very sort of dark, Um, childhood story that then leads to this incredible, performative, laborious, driven career. And and the fact that you can see how the two intersect and how one gives rise to the other um, is is really what gives the book its force.
2: Yeah, um, that's interesting. Let's dig in there a little bit. I mean, he heavily has mythologized in music and from the stage, this relationship with his father. It turns out his father is possibly a schizophrenic, but certainly at a bare minimum bipolar, a very dark, a very brooding and removed figure. Springsteen himself is kind of raised by women, by a grandmother, loving grandmother, aunts, and a very strong uh, maternal figure. Um, I think we could get into how that uh, uh, made its way into his persona and his music, but um, added to that, this second interesting fact. It's 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 great that you brought these together because it's always struck me that Springsteen actually took quite a long time to get famous. Um, you know, he was playing in bar bands for ages before he got signed. Uh, he puts out three albums that uh, two albums which, by and large, commercially bomb. Um, even Born to Run, which launched him as a bigger act still left him playing, you know, three and 4,000 seat arenas uh, into the eighties in everywhere, except in New Jersey and, and the, you know, Northeast, he really becomes a superstar almost sort of in, in, in rock and roll terms, relatively late in his life and career and in with born in the USA. So he's got that whole long period where this dark, brooding, occasionally manic energy won't let him stop, right? It's a tale of incredible monomania and persistence.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's almost exhausting at portions of the book. You know, when you're with him in his early 20s and the various bands that he put together and the amount of of crisscrossing the country and playing and playing and playing and and driving and driving and driving that you undergo with him in the course of, this book is really gives you the sense of what that took, and, and you're right, you know, not up till I would say that probably with The River and with Hungry Heart mm-hmm. becoming a top 10 single, yeah, so true. that that point is sort of where he sort of is actually a rock star. Before that, he's almost more of a press phenomenon than uh than, than really a sort of popular rock star, you know. Like when Born to the Run came out, he was simultaneously on the covers of Time and Newsweek in the same week, and that kind of established a notoriety but yeah it didn't correspond to being a rock star in this way and so there is this long kind of struggle up a lot and during which a lot of people would have quit or you know radically readjusted what they were doing and there is something so incredible about about the work ethic and the sense that he, there's something that he has to become that he that he almost has no choice but to fulfill this partly in the face of his father's skepticism and neglect and partly, yeah, because there, there is this self that's really, really ill formed um, that, that he needs to find a way to, to burst into.
3: Carl, something that both you and Rebecca Traister, who wrote really wonderfully on the Springsteen memoir as well, both of you observed separately that, that there's never any question of a ghostwriter having written this book, that that question you ask yourself when, you know, you pick up a Rock Gods 500-page memoir tome, that it, it, it's clear all the way through that this is Bruce Springsteen's voice still, you know, struggling with the same questions that he's been struggling with in his music, just as kind of overbearing and occasionally corny and extremely sincere as the Bruce that does four hour concerts every time he plays. Could you talk a little about the prose style and just how you hear his voice coming through on the page?
1: Yeah, I mean, the example that I gave early in my review is a passage where he's talking about his sort of early rock and roll fandom. And at one point says, says that hearing Louis, Louie and, and like a rolling stone, let him knew that there were people out there speaking in tongues and rewriting the words of the constitution, like all of these lines. But Wait, so yeah, much. that,
0: that quote is so great, Carl, let me just jump in and read it. Um, so we can hear a little bit of, uh, the boss's voice. Um, for a minute. Like a Rolling Stone and Louie Louie let me know that someone somewhere was speaking in tongues and that absurd ecstasy had been snuck into the Constitution's First Amendment and was an American birthright. I heard it on the radio. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I think you observed, Carl, correctly that that would be the moment that the power cord would kick in and the song would start in the stadium, right? After I heard <laughs> yeah, it on the yeah. radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one question I had for you, Carl. I mean, I think
0: you address in your piece really interestingly Uh, how much Bruce Springsteen complicates his own persona, complicates it and confirms it at the same time. On the one hand, he's exactly what you might expect him to be in terms of the tone and the prose. Um, And on the other, he delves really deeply into his own upbringing, uh, his father's suffering with um, some sort of mental illness that may have been paranoid schizophrenia or or, um, he may have been bipolar. Um, But did reading the book change the way you heard Springsteen's music?
1: I think it changed the way I heard the music in the sense of that you get a slightly broader version of his voice. Um, and and in some ways you hear more in the music, the things that are being excluded and things that are being carved out in order to, in order to get the effect of his songwriting. And, and the, there's a little bit more of that included in, in the book. And then, and I think he's trying to be very conscientious and very, self-examining self, re, self, self examining, um, which is a quality of his songwriting too but it's just taken a little further here and then again there's sort of a next level that you're aware of reading the books which is the things that are being carved out of here there's so many points in the book where there's just sort of a, a cutaway or, or there's just a sense of like wait what's the you're describing the feeling but what's the actual story that happened there and you can see him being discreet and whether protective of other people or protective of himself um, and at other moments really open. So you become conscious of that as you read the book, too. So it's all a a lot of the sort of stage management of being Bruce Springsteen becomes something you're much more conscious of kind of after sort of encountering him in this form, I think.
3: You know, as long as Julia was just asking about the ways in which he he is willing to, well, as you put it, Carl, in your review, to, to, to tarnish his own legacy, um, almost on purpose. You you say some interesting things about both race and gender and how those those two categories, which you know we think of as really not being so important in the in the white stadium rock god world, uh, have figured in in Bruce's *Buildings Roman* as well. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. The, the two categories operate kind of differently. And, you know, the gender side of it is something that he's really, especially in the later parts of the book, really kind of fascinatingly conscious of. And, you know, as Steve was saying, you know, the the sort of feminine side of his upbringing is something that you become aware of looking at the biography. And then later in the book, and sort of after his marriage. And when Patti Sielta joins the E Street Band, he starts talking about his own misogyny and the misogyny that he inherited from his father, um, and the the misogyny of rock band culture, and the way that the band has had to grow out of out of those things, and again, he's not specific a lot of the time, but he is very frank and really kind of un, um, unsparing in calling himself out on that level. And you know, and it's great because the sort of hyper masculinity of the, particularly the '80s Bruce Springsteen image is something that I think a lot of people have trouble with or are put off by in him. And so to see him confront that so head on is great. On race, it's a lot a lot less head on. He tries at moments. Um, there are moments when he kind of acknowledges that both in rock and roll and in American life and in his own band, that this issue is one that you can never fully escape and you can never sort of avoid the the, the baggage that you bring to it yourself but in other ways it it feels it always feels a bit unsatisfying you know there's a, there's a way in which in which his race consciousness is like and it it doesn't feel like something to blame him for it feels like sort of a a matter of place and generation and just who he is that it's only so far that he can kind of work that stuff out for himself and it, and it becomes troubling in the book in places particularly where when he's sort of dealing with and not dealing with his relationship with Clarence Clemens, his saxophone mm-hmm. player, the only yeah. long-term black member of the of the E Street Band, and that that's something that I was kind of left puzzling over after reading the book. Right.
2: You know, it's funny, is Carl. It strikes me that um, you know Springsteen, especially over time, turned himself into this uh, kind of uh, forsaken American simpleton in a way. I mean, the the songs got increasingly musically simple and increasingly lyrically simple, um, more emotionally direct. I totally agree with your assessment. And it seems to be the prevailing one that Darkness on the Edge of Town is where the old Springsteen and the new Springsteen came together and formed kind of a, I mean, I'd say it's almost a perfect rock and roll record. It's just a, a complete classic from 1978. And what's interesting about the memoir to me so far, I haven't read the whole thing, is that it starts to clarify why behind that simpleton persona there's an enormous amount of suppressed but occasionally implied and expressed um, complexity. Like There's something, he tends to think as a writer, uh, both in the memoir and in his music, he tends to think in very overblown categories. Um, it, it, there's a fear of banality and, and the simple and the small in a weird way. So everything is inflated. And I think that's probably one of the reasons people, to the extent some people feel an aversion to his music, they feel it. But It called to mind a comparison, which was a number of years ago, tootling around YouTube, I came across John Cougar Mellencamp doing a bunch of his songs, solo acoustic, and he couldn't carry them off right that, that that something about that music requires a peppy crack backing band and him kind of prancing and dancing around and doing it in a big way if you whether you like Springsteen or not you cannot deny that if you hand the man an acoustic guitar and you stick him on a stage he can do any of his big songs including uh, born in the USA as as blues acoustic music or folk acoustic music and there's just he his whole biography is in his voice in some strangely expressive way, and and that really that's what's brought home to me is like this kind of semi-articulate, you know, simplistic, archetypal American narrative that I think grates on a lot of people for its studied simplicity, comes up against a a really deep and weird and dark and miasmic volcano, and and the book I think. Has now made it clear what the contents of that weird inner miasma might be.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, one of the things about the book that, it, and it only sort of creeps up on you gradually, is that, like, I really finished it going, like, Oh, contrary to what I might always have thought. I don't think I would want to be Bruce Springsteen's friend. <laughs> like, like, I don't want to hang out with him. Like this guy is—this guy is a little too much. <laughs> yeah. But it's
3: because he's too Bruce Springsteen-y, right? I mean, what, what you discovered—what <laughs> you discovered—is not like I don't want to be his friend because he's actually this awful corporatist, you know, manipulator behind the scenes or something. It's just sort of like I can't take that much Bruce at one time.
1: <laughs> I'll stick to the records. And, and and the way the sense you get it his relationships you know i don't think all of his relationships you know probably not his marriage um but even even a little bit with his kids like you he wants so much from people all the time and the the kind of pressure that you feel he exerts all around him and you know and it's his internal pressure just kind of coming out like it's just like that is not i don't want to be in the in the firing range of that you know mm.
2: All right. Well, Carl, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your review. It's really a wonderful exploration of this uh, very odd uh, but, f- uh, but intriguing memoir from the boss. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always, it's always really
1: special. It's always a pleasure, guys.
2: The Italian novelist, uh, pseudonymously known as Elena Ferrante, has been unmasked by a, uh, by a journalist in Italy. The subject, I have to admit, Julia, makes me so enraged. I think I need to pass the hosting microphone to you.
0: Uh, Okay, let me take a crack. So over the weekend, uh, a journalist named Claudio Gatti published in several international publications, including here in the States, the uh, online edition of the New York Review of Books, a piece using financial reporting to show, uh, he argues, the identity of Elena Ferrante. And we had a knockdown drag out about this a couple months ago when a different person claimed to have unmasked her and identified a different potential authoress. But now Gatti has used financial reporting to scrutinize the records of the um, publishing company behind Frante's work and noted that uh, an increasingly large set of payments have been made to one woman who uh, is publicly known only as a um, freelance translator for the edition, but that those payments track very closely with what one would presume the royalties to be for the books. Uh, And so we will discuss whether we think this journalist is a
2: monster. Please, can we not say her supposed name? I r- really no.
0: That's ridiculous. You can.
2: I can. I cannot. But you will say it. Yes. Why would you say it? I, that's to me because
0: it's, just... it's fucking out in the world. Oh,
2: Jesus. Okay. Fine. She's been bandied band- about. Out, a lot of things are out in the world that I can guarantee you, you wouldn't say. But I, this apparently is not one of them. So.
0: Uh, Yes, plenty of things are out in the world, Steve, but the name of the translator who Claudio Gatti claims is Elena Ferrante is Anita Raja, who is one of the people who's been bandied about in the Italian press as a potential likely Ferrante for several years. Uh, Um, Steve, you seem full of ire. Express your ire.
2: um, uh, You know, I'm not going to have this debate thrown back on either my temperament or my affect, because it has nothing to do with either. What it has to do with is a total... Lack of respect and dignity. And um, I think what's interesting is that um, the overwhelming reaction is against this revelation. Um, the intelligent reaction has been against it. The sensitive reaction, uh, the literary reaction, is pretty uniformly against the exposure. Um, I'll let people find, you know, the various, I think, quite lovely essays written in favor of her right to anonymity. Of course, her right's not a legal right. It's not even quite as firm as a norm in any sense, but it was her choice. And when you disrespect someone else's choice, uh, you steal something from them that can't be given back. In this instance, I think something quite radical. It's been pointed out that the language in which this repulsive revelation was couched was is, is preposterously self-serving on its face, but even deeper still expresses an an urge to bring her, this poor woman, to account for her own success in a weird way and as if she somehow had it coming or had asked for it by being commercially successful. And what I find interesting about that is we appear to live in a time where the thought of someone doing something intrinsically beautiful and meaningful for non-commercial reasons is somehow um, and not wanting to engage the apparatus of publicity by doing it is somehow guilty of something. Uh, And I would really encourage people who who even those like you julia who are inclined to think that there's a public right to know um to really reread the initial piece that outed the woman who's presumably elena ferrante and tell me whether you follow its logic and agree with it um if you do then there's a ontological split between how you see the world and how i see the world
0: I'm not going to argue that the piece was well written. I mean, often the people who are the well, most- I'm not
2: saying it was poorly written. It was probably finely written. It was just it re- revealed a worldview that is so inimical to the way I see the world. Can you that characterize
3: that that logic, Steve?
2: I think the logic is that um, you know, Fronte's implies, I think, quite heavily that Fronte's a kind of hypocrite for wanting anonymity at the same time she reaps the rewards of of being in, pseudonymously famous and um, and. Um, secondly, it congratulates itself, you know, with a kind of vomitous degree of self-approval for using uh, a kind of data journalistic and, and forensic accounting methods, um, which is totally inimical to the literary project of Elena Ferrante. I mean, it's a way of looking at the world and processing the world um, that next to what Ferrante is doing and trying to contribute to the world is incredibly grubby and small minded. Um, admit, admit that you're prurient. I mean, I would have far less of a problem with this if it were us magazine or the Italian equivalent of people or the national Enquirer that had gone on its grubby little way and grubbed up this thing and thrown it in front of the public. Um, you know, meaninglessly, uh, in order to sell newspapers and make some money, but that this has a kind of data journalistic gloss to it. Just makes it—I I hate to use the word, but it makes it vomitously n- neoliberal in its in its outlook. And the final thing I would say is, um,
0: wait, how is it neoliberal? Also, you've used vomitously twice so far, so you clearly <laughs> don't hate to use it that much.
2: Uh, well, that's a that's a different that's a different set of issues that gets away from, I think, but people have written, I think, very sensitively about what kind of a worldview says that once someone comes to market, all of them comes to market for our common appraisal, which I do think is a deeply neoliberal predisposition, but we don't even need to go in that direction. Um, The larger point, which is completely missed, I think, by people who have, you know, kind of radically non-literary minds, is that it doesn't matter. Who Elena Ferrante is. Um, Elena Ferrante is Elena Ferrante, the author of these books. The actual corporeal, physical human being is is irrelevant to the literary persona and the literary production of the works. Um, and it's, it's just an absolutely debased kind of curiosity that says that these two things need to be linked up with one another, as if that provides us with some information we need to know. Um, the gift... The context for all of this discussion has to be the gift that this woman gave the world and the experience that those of us who've enjoyed the gift have had in enjoying it and how far that is from these kinds of acts. And if you care about Ferrante, you should not have cared about who she really was. I mean... Well, uh, why don't we let Dana speak?
3: <laughs> well, Steve, you're so persuasive. I mean, I think my reaction to this was more intuitive and less analytical. I didn't, I didn't explore. And to tell you the honest truth, I didn't read any of the things we were supposed to read for this segment because I didn't want to learn <laughs> who she was. <laughs> it was enough for me to know that she'd been discovered, and to me, it has it has everything to do with the fact that Elena Ferrante is still alive, and I hope well and flourishing, and will write many more books in her life. I mean, I guess, Steve, you could say, for example, you could bring up the question, the, the sort of chestnut, the literary ethical chestnut, should Max Brode, Kafka's best friend, have burned mm-hmm. his manuscripts mm-hmm. as Kafka asked mm-hmm. him to do upon his death? Right. And of course, a part of you could say, well, you know, if you really if you really respect the kind of privacy and desires of Franz mm-hmm. Kafka, then you wouldn't read any of the things that were published then. Right. I but but, agree- but wait, but I'm not finished with my thought yep, yet. Sorry. But Franz Kafka is not alive anymore to, to yes. have his privacy invaded and to have his wishes contravened right whereas Elena Ferrante or the person she turns out to be uh, is still alive and so there's this part of me and I guess this is related Steve to what you were saying about the gift that she gave you and wanting to give her some gift back I mean I don't know that I can make this argument journalistically on some broad scale but I myself do not want to know who she is because she doesn't want to be known and and I I respect that
0: I think you guys are crazy I just like I, I, I I don't understand at all i mean first of all she is not actually uh been playing the recluse in any way she has been like flapping around at this identity flag of like who am i i'm so mysterious i'm darting behind a tree i'm darting behind another tree like she's just (laughs) Just using a pseudonym that's a a total
2: mischaracterization but go on
0: what she's done all kinds of interviews i mean she's a very public recluse so what uh, she's also written a book that's coming out this fall which like puts forth this like so web what? of of <laughs> so her what? biography. Her right? She has the right to report. You were pulling like a Donald wanted- Trump just introducing <laughs> me with so what as I try to articulate a point. Like yeah, can you yeah. lay the fuck off for a sec so I can no. finish my
3: thought? <laughs> Wait, I'm going to do what Lester Holt didn't do and stand up for the interrupted woman. Let her finish. <laughs> like Jesus Christ, Steve.
0: Um, she's given a ton of interviews through this veil of anonymity. She's got a book coming out in which she professes in in to articulate Elena Ferrante's selfhood as as the authoress on top of the fictional work. So she's kind of spinning out this like hypothetical bit of art around this other identity. And I think understanding, I mean, you can make the case that you want to look at pieces of art as pure text divorced from their creation and their authorship, or that you want to understand the work in the context of the artist, their biography, and who they are. They're both you know, rich terrains of how people look at literature. You can prefer one to the other. But I think it's interesting to see who this woman might be, what her background is, and to understand it. And I, you know, I do think you're making a case about the way in which the information was presented and the argument put forth for excavating it. And I agree that the piece is like weakly structured and conceived. I think often people who do um, the real digging kind of investigative work are not always the best writers. Like sometimes they go hand in hand, but sometimes they don't. It's like a weird... It's a weird piece that mm-hmm. that puts together this set of facts and it doesn't do itself any favors in the way that it presents the argument for understanding this information. You know, And the piece also includes like a sidebar in which the journalist goes into um, the history of Raja's mother, who was a Holocaust survivor and escaped German Jew as though what I mean that's sort of interesting to know but the but he seems to suggest in a way that seems totally unpersuasive and distasteful and weird that that Raja I don't know should be making hay with that story instead like it it, it, that, that that seemed naive and dumb to me but to say that there's no argument for understanding the woman who made this incredible work in the context of it uh just because she said so doesn't make any sense to me.
3: I wouldn't say that well, there's no argument. I mean, I think that we're really talking about sort of two two streams that sometimes can't cross. You know, I mean the right of journalism or the the claim of journalism to know what can be known and the the right or the claim of literature to to, to hide and to abscond or to to mask or disguise? I mean, that's very abstract, but don't you think that those are sort of the two ideologies in, in conflict here, Steve? I,
2: I don't think so. I mean, I think, well, first of all, a couple of things. One is, let's not, I do think that there's a difference between literary posterity and what happens in, you know, during the course of the lifetime of any individual. And yes, Max Brod should have rescued those works from the fire, in part because he, Kafka was, was dead. Brod was making a decision that wasn't I hope wasn't easy for him, but he made the right one, but it was difficult, right? Th- those wishes were real. It wasn't that they could just be ignored only because Kafka was dead, but he was weighing against them the right of all of posterity to be familiar with works that turned out to be like, like, really world reorganizing masterpieces, right? I mean, we think of the world through partially the lens of Franz Kafka. I think on balance, that was the right thing to do. We're nowhere near that situation now. This person is alive. All of eternity is awaiting to forensically go over the relationship between her actual quote unquote life and her works. That can wait. Right now, this person had a wish. She gave the world something. The world loves it. The world loves it on terms that are, unabashedly literary. Therefore, there is a horizon of expectation that attends the joyous reception of the gift. And completely outside of and violating to that is a set of, to my mind, journalistic non-ethics and a culture of publicity and exposure, she didn't want to be part of. let me finish. And secondly, by the way, she's writing about the Neapolitan mafia. There might be other, and her husband is Neapolitan. There might be reasons of personal safety involved in not wanting to be exposed I I, I, I I cannot point to anything empirical in the world of law norms or ethics to tell you why this shouldn't have happened I am only telling you that the the community of people who really care about Elena Ferrante are every bit as disgusted as I am. That's, that's a
0: bullshit deep. argument to just say, like, well, right thinking people agree with me. I mean, look, here's my question for you. where Where is the line? Like Donald Trump would also prefer that nobody dig up his tax form.
2: Oh, come on. <laughs> Julia, that's that, that. Of all the things, I really think that's possibly the weakest argument you've ever made. OK, so rebut it show. instead
0: of saying that. Rebut it.
2: You think that the right to, right to the public's right to know what the business dealings of a man running for the presidency on the basis of his business competence has some analog, analogy to the right of a, like, a where human is being the to publish Sudan? I don't know where the line is drawn. If If our powers of judgment are so attenuated because we can't draw a bright line in some... Uh, you know, b- between—I mean, I just to me this. You're is making the
0: argument of, off of dudgeon instead of argument. What I'm saying I think is,
2: I, I actually, Julia, I think aside from my tone, because I knew this would become about my affect. Actually, my argument's pretty freaking ironclad. But, but the 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 truth is, there's there's no there's no hard and fast rule bound way to adjudicate whether or not this should happen the thrust of my argument is that there is a nature to the kind of activity that Elena Ferrante was engaged in and her readers were engaged in. And completely inimical to that is a culture of publicity and exposure and data journalism and public's right to know. These two things are inimical to one another. All right. So something about what made this person interesting to all of us in the first place has been deeply offended by this. And you can say, oh, right-thinking people, fine. Well, that sounds to me like a very Trumpian uh, rhetorical move too. It happens (laughs) to be that the most interesting and sensitive responses to this by far have been by people who find it, frankly, subhuman to have done.
0: I just think you're taking this to an extreme that makes the conversation less interesting. I think Dana's point, which is that the rights of privacy and the rights of journalism to find things out are increasingly at odds and that trying to sort through, you know, how, where the line is and how to puzzle the, I mean, that was an honest question to you about the tax return. Like this is one of the most important and significant literary works of the 21st century. It's massively successful. It's massively successful in translation across cultures and to understand a bit more about where it comes from for people who are curious seems valuable to me in in the course of literary history and understanding the work. I also think, like, if you're just a person who hasn't encountered the book and th- is thinking of bringing it on your Christmas vacation, like, all this will percolate to you as like, oh, they discovered Elena Ferrante was an Italian woman. Like, That's probably that's what I assumed. Okay, you know, like there's a way to avoid this as a reader of the works that doesn't complicate or corrupt them at all. And I also think on the subject of why, like I found this reporting interesting. It's interesting to know who this woman is. And it does affect the way I view the work in a way that I find valuable and totally worth thinking about. And one doesn't have to dig into this or look at this if they want to. But part of the. Focus of the Ferrante novels is this idea that this organic literary intelligence arose from the pure poverty of Neapolitan life. And uh, some of the hints and suggestions about Ferrante's identity have suggested that she herself might be a seamstress's daughter who. Uh, you know, is has a life trajectory that echoes very much that of Elena Greco, the main character. Uh, and it is interesting and I think informative and illuminating about the works as, as constructed literary acts to learn that, in fact, the woman's background is quite different, that her family is part Neapolitan but also has this outsider quality and that her class level is different than the class level of her protagonists. And I don't know that it's, you know, I think in general the impulse in literary criticism to attribute too much to the biography of authors and interpreting works is one I tend to argue against, but I don't argue against it as a matter of, like, what we have the right to know or understand. Uh, And I feel like it will enrich my reading of those texts to know more.
2: I I don't necessarily disagree with that. I just think absolutely none of it, not one iota of it, trumps her right while she's alive to withhold that information from whomever she wishes. I,
0: I just don't, like... Again, this is where I think the line is what matters, like where who gets to decide what journalists have a right to report about their lives. If you're a public figure, journal- which he definitely and be- is,
2: but. But Julia as you know as an editor because that line is drawn nowhere in the black nor could be drawn anywhere in the black letter of the law nor in some entirely normative ethics that all of us subscribe to judgment has to be used. I'm not telling you it can't happen. I'm just telling you it repulses me that it has happened for reasons that are obviously unenforceable. You know, they they weren't enforced by the I'm not the saying it's unenforceable I'm saying why? why
0: why would you enforce it?
2: Why would I personally enforce it? I've done nothing but spew forth the reasons why I wouldn't pursue my own curiosity about who this woman is until after she was gone.
3: Yeah, Steve. I mean, once again, I think less less because I've been persuaded by your argument and just because of my initial revulsion at the idea of opening up those links to find out who she was. I, I, I'm kind of on your side.
0: All right. Well, uh, listeners come tell us what you think on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culture We will continue scrapping there.
2: All right. Now is the moment in our uh, podcast where we endorse Dane. What do you have?
1: Well,
3: Steve, I'm going to go out on a limb this week and endorse a show that just started. There's only been one episode and there's no telling where it will go, but I have high hopes for this show. Uh, As I think maybe um, regular listeners know, because I've endorsed them before, I'm a big, big fan of Dan Povenmire and Swampy Marsh, Jeff Swampy Marsh, the creators of Phineas and Ferb, one of my daughter's favorite shows. And when that show went off the air last year, I wrote a big encomium to them and, uh, and and profiled the two of them and talked about how the show was made. And they both mentioned, oh, yes, we're going off to, you know, go into our, um, you know, our reclusion time and then come up with a new show together. So their new show has just started to air. The first episode aired this week. It's called Milo Murphy's Law, and it's on Disney XD, I believe, on Monday nights. But like everything on Disney XD, it repeats about every two hours. And uh, while it is not yet Phineas and Ferb, that I don't even think Phineas and Ferb was as great as it became in its the very early part of its first season. So I really hope that um, the that show Milo Murphy's Law is going to go good places. The basic premise of Milo Murphy's Law, as embedded in the title, is that there's this kid, voiced in- incredibly well by Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> 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 named Milo, <laughs> who is a kind of walking embodiment of Murphy's Law, which is to say that everywhere he goes, disaster follows. So the credit sequence has him merrily walking off to school with his backpack, and, you know, lampposts are crashing behind him and buildings are exploding. He's kind of this this jinxed kid. And uh, and the show so far is about his friendship with the new kid in town and how they escape the various disasters that seem to befall everywhere they go. And uh, like Phineas and Ferb, it's, it takes place in a crazy universe whose logic rules keep changing Um, But it is at heart this very sweet show about childhood and friendship. And, uh, And so Milo Murphy's Law, Disney XD, watch it with me and let's hope it goes someplace crazy and good. Somehow
0: XD doesn't seem like the right suffix for Disney. It just sounds so hardcore. <laughs> it, <laughs> it sounds like forever. Disney has like an extreme sport or like Disney at like snowmow cross or something.
3: <laughs> There's At this point, Disney is such mm. a huge entity. I think they have like two or three different TV channels. It's a very confusing world, but it is not hard to find Milo Murphy's Law out there. In fact, I think the first episode is now online.
2: Mm. Uh, excellent. I will check that out with the kids. Um, Julia, what do you have?
0: Um, In Slate Plus, we're going to talk about an interesting article in The Washington Post by Stephanie McCrummon, who's a terrific reporter there. And I wanted to take a moment to point out a piece that she did in 2014 that is one of my favorite pieces of journalism ever published. It's a profile of Craig Deeds, who's a state senator in Virginia, whose son suffered from mental illness and after a long circuitous path in and out of various forms of treatment, um, had a break one day and attacked his father with a knife and then killed himself and she spends a significant amount of time with deeds in the year following this event and the piece is published around the anniversary of his son's death um, and just grapples with how poorly our institutions medical governmental educational and otherwise handle mental illness Uh, even for this man who has a position of political power and it's completely heartbreaking Incredibly beautifully executed and just absolutely worth reading. So it's called "A Father's Scars" by Stephanie McCremon. We'll post a link to it on our show page.
2: Wow, um, this makes me rethink my um, endorsement. Though I'll, I'll go ahead. and <laughs> are so contrasting. The,
3: Mine is this jolly little show about kids exploding lampposts, and Julia went really dark. So you have you have it. You have it's worth it. Kind
0: of it's you. worth it. It's like sometimes it's hard to steel yourself to read the the piece you know is going to be dark, but um, I really. Strongly recommend that everybody click this. Yeah, up.
2: I mean, my endorsement came with a caveat to begin with, so I'll emphasize the caveat maybe a little more strongly than I would have previously. I'm endorsing the movie "Dirty Rotten Scoundrels" um, a 1988, comedy directed by Frank Oz. It stars Steve Martin, and Michael Caine. Did pretty good business when it came out. Not, you know, not widely regarded as a classic. We just happened to select it because we thought. Uh, our 10-year-old and 13-year-old kids might watch it with us and enjoy it. It turns out they loved it, um, somewhat surprisingly. Um, here's what struck me about the film. It's very hard to watch a 1988 comedy now because it is done in such a totally different style from contemporary uh, feature film comedies. It's not, you know, which have been influenced for better and for worse by 30 Rock and The Simpsons, where there's like a very joke per page, um, you know, uh, formula to them. Uh, it it it, it does not you know they're t- obviously for some reason terrified that your attention is going to flag that you need humor constantly they're the the quote-unquote high points involve some big um gross outset piece all of that's completely missing from the movie and i would say even further as i started to watch the movie as i got deeper into the movie i was noticing that there are no jokes in it it's funny throughout but there're literally no wisecracks there're no punchlines people in real life don't tell jokes, right? It's a totally different style of comedy where everything is basically a really deep setup that brings you to a moment where you realize what's happening and how it impacts these characters. And it plays out really on the faces of um, Kane and Martin, who are obviously like peerless uh, performers uh, of a totally different type which is part of the comedy of the film but the patience and the pacing of it and the sense that the whole thing is a joke that's going to pay off um in this somewhat you know deeper way i mean, I don't, I don't want to oversell it it's not a masterpiece it's a very 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 well done movie and here's the caveat the caveat is the funniest set piece from it involves um steve martin pretending to be the, the let's let's be completely frank. The mentally disabled brother of Michael Caine. It's riotously funny, but it's also of the kind that made Jerry Lewis eventually really apologize to the world. And I just don't know. It's not explicitly the case that this brother is supposed to be in any specific way mentally handicapped. But I, and I don't I don't perceive the joke as being directed against handicapped people. But I may be completely wrong. In which case, I withdraw my endorsement. Um, it's 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 not a. It, No one would make that segment today. It's an equivocal endorsement. People who've seen the movie, I'd love to hear what your opinion of it is as a movie, but also this particular set piece uh, in which Martin is just a a comedic genius. Um, But uh, anyway, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, check it out. Very curious to know if people like the movie or not. I
0: just watched that movie for the first time last year, Steve, or maybe even earlier this year. You're kidding. Yeah, and I I had a really similar response, which is that it is still hilarious and yet totally unsettling and strange in the set of things that it, it's normal to make fun of. Uh, well, yeah. that, like
3: a lot of Steve Martin now. I mean, think about The Jerk, how it begins with, I was born a poor black child, and there's this whole sort of sharecropper parody at the beginning, which which was very funny at the time, but which now is something that nobody could do and nobody would want to do.
0: Yeah, I, this one is more subtle, and I'm trying to remember that, well, there's the... There's the um, there's a scene that involves a seduction of a woman um, conducted under false pretenses. It's like an impersonation. I can't remember the exact details, and some of them are spoilery. But there's a seduction scene that, at least as it initially plays in the movie, is very queasy-making from a 2016 perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all yeah. sort of comes out in the wash once you finish the film. But uh, it's, it, it is interesting to time travel back 20 years or 30 and just remember how, how much we've changed.
2: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, the thing is built around false pretense seduction, but you know, I think everyone in the end gives as good as as they get, and possibly it's. I agree. It's just really hard to know in what spirit to watch a movie like that now. But uh, I also just laughed my ass off. I mean, Steve Martin is Steve Martin's a national treasure, man. I mean, it's funny. It's like Bill Murray has aged into this eminence, and Steve Martin has sort of faded out gracefully, maybe. But um, he made. He really did some incredible work back in the Steve day. Anyway, dirty rotten be, scoundrels. He'll be
0: back soon. He's like he wrote that great memoir oh. and that yeah, 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 less yeah. great but still fine novel.
3: He's he's, he's in the yeah mix. no 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 don't stick a he's fork in Steve in another... Martin yet. <laughs>
2: no, no no, there's no fork in Steve Martin. No, in fact, it was. I mean it as a compliment. He's interested in being something other than a movie star, and good for him. But yeah, so a anyway. banjo playing my Morris art collector. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, check it out, dirty rotten scoundrels. Uh, tell us what you think. Um, Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Julia, we're still friends, aren't we?
0: I think so. I think so. (laughs) I like having so much esprit de about your wrongness. Let's do it again next week.
3: (laughs) (laughs) One of you had had better have a case of wine on the other's doorstep tomorrow morning. or I'm quitting the show. (laughs) (laughs) Which one? Uh, (laughs) Ah, there's the question. I I think Dana made that (laughs) unidirectional. Yeah, you can do a wine exchange. That works, too.
2: All right, well, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Cap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. There is an entire roster of excellent shows to be found at itunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you. We'll see you next week.